Well, let us continue in worship this morning. And how appropriate that we are in the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And this morning we're looking at verses 37 through 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 47, 37, excuse me, and 41 through 41. Here is the reading of God's inerrant word. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word this morning. When Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was conceived in Mary's womb, it was the Holy Spirit who sovereignly brought about the conception of his body. When Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was baptized in the Jordan River by John the I like that. By John the Baptist, it was the Holy Spirit who descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. When Jesus of Nazareth, the man, went into the desert to be tempted by the devil, who led him there? It was the Holy Spirit. When Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was walking among people, healing them, restoring their sight, returning them to life, feeding the multitudes, and dealing with his haters, it was the Holy Spirit who empowered him in all of it. In short, during his earthly ministry, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, and he was filled with the Spirit, all of which points to the humility of Jesus of Nazareth. He willingly placed himself under the caring hand of his father as the spirit filled him and empowered him for the fulfillment of his mission on earth. In all of it, Jesus of Nazareth was obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. So Jesus of Nazareth died. The man drew his last breath as he hanged on that tree. He willingly and obediently fulfilled the terms of the old covenant by giving his own life, shedding his own blood as the payment for the sins of his people. Thus, fulfilling what the blood of bulls and goats could only picture in the Old Testament. Since the wages of sin is death, 
as the Lamb of God, Jesus received upon himself those wages. The sins of his covenant people were placed upon him and God the Father unleashed his wrath. He truly died on the cross. But as we know, his death was not the end. This same man who died was then released from the bonds of death, for death could not hold him. He came out of the grave alive with a new and glorified body, no longer subject to infirmities, decay, or death. Death can no longer touch the risen Lord Jesus. Now, later on, the same man, Jesus of Nazareth, now risen from the grave, gave a charge to his disciples. What did he tell them? Matthew 28. Go and make what? More disciples. More disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Do you remember that? Yes. This commission, however was founded upon a new reality that belongs to this risen man alone. Before he gives his charge to the disciples, the risen Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, upon that reality, Go and make disciples. Immediately after saying those words, this glorified man is taken up to heaven. He ascended into the very presence of God. What happens next is the explanation of what Jesus meant when he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, as Peter preaches his sermon to explain the events of Pentecost, we are told that Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he meaning Jesus has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing thus the authority that was given to Jesus of Nazareth now resurrected and risen and exalted, which he mentioned in the great commission consists in that he As a glorified man, exalted at the right hand of God with all authority and power, has been given the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. He is now the one with authority to build his own church. He has the authority to build his own church. In this regard, one theologian said this, and I quote, The authority to give the Spirit was the culminating point of Christ's exaltation. Why was he exalted? So that he could receive the promise of the what? Holy Spirit and now give it to the whole world. I said last week that I believe this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that? To Abraham was given this covenant, this promise. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed right? Jesus is ascended into the heavens. He's exalted. He's given the spirit. Now he has the authority to bless all families of the earth. How? Through the Holy Spirit. He blesses all the families of the earth. Now, what is the proof? 
What is the proof that Jesus now has all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He submitted himself to the will of God. And because of his obedience, he is now crowned with glory, honor, and authority over all things. The proof, Jesus of Nazareth is now the one seated in a position of authority. And he, and he alone, can give the spirit to his covenant people, the church. In the spirit, Christ himself is with us until the end of the age. Why is it then that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? Because the one to whom the spirit was given is the same one who now gives the spirit and also the one who is turning all his enemies into his footstool. Nothing can, nothing will stop the exalted Christ from building his church and from exercising authority over all principalities and powers in the world. Hence, only the exalted Jesus can hold the title head of the church because only the exalted Jesus can build the church by the spirit because the spirit now circumcises the heart of all his people, thus marking us out as the true Israel, the true people of God. No other man except the exalted one has the authority, power, and prerogative to grant the new covenant sign to his new covenant people. So here is where the continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant is found in both Old and new covenants, the people of God are set apart by a sign. Circumcision of the flesh in the old covenant, circumcision of the heart in the new covenant. Hence, the word new in new covenant. It is actually better than the old. It is in and from this context that we enter into verses 37 and 41. These men of Israel have heard and now know that Jesus of Nazareth is king. The coming of the spirit is the proof. They have heard the truth. Let me show you then the first element we see in verse 37. The sorrowful question. Verse 37, the sorrowful question. When they heard this, what is this? The exaltation of Christ. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's a story in the book of Genesis that illustrates what we are witnessing here as we consider the audience reaction to Peter's sermon. I'm speaking of the story of Joseph. In Genesis 37, we are told that Joseph was hated by his own brothers. Later on in the same chapter, we are told that due to their hatred, they wanted Joseph dead. Instead, they found another way to get rid of Joseph by selling him into slavery. Joseph ended up in Egypt. Long story short, this man, Joseph, became the most powerful man on earth, second only to Pharaoh. To Joseph was given power to grant life or to take life. There are many things we could point uh, in this story, but I want you to notice one in particular. When Joseph's brothers finally realized that the most powerful man in the world to whom they had been speaking in Egypt was the brother they had sold into slavery. They could not even speak. The Bible says in Genesis 45, three, for they were dismayed at his presence. In an amazing turn of events, the one who was humiliated and eventually sold as a slave 
ended up being exalted at the right hand of Pharaoh, and to him was given power to provide for or withhold from people. When Joseph's brothers finally see that this man not only is the most powerful man in the world, but that he's also the one they betrayed, they were dismayed. What is this dismay? It is a mixture of both sorrow and terror. Sorrow, for they realize the evil of their ways against their brother, but terror, for they also realize he, the same man, can now destroy them with one word. Notice, please, the parallels to how the men of Israel responded to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter is addressing the men of Israel. These are brothers of Jesus according to the flesh. And these men of Israel were the ones who betrayed Jesus. They sold him, as it were, to the Romans and had him killed. They humiliated Jesus. As John chapter 1 verse 11 says, he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was rejected and ultimately put to death by his own people using the evil of the Roman soldiers. Thus, according to Acts chapter 2 verse 37, these people, upon hearing Peter's sermon, were also dismayed. They were cut to the heart. Why? For the same reason, Joseph's brothers were cut to the heart. The only difference being that Joseph's brothers betrayed a mere man. The men of Israel to whom Peter is preaching betrayed the son of man, Jesus of Nazareth. And now they have realized that Jesus, whom they had killed, has been exalted at the right hand, not of Pharaoh, but of God himself, and that he rules not only over Egypt, but over all things. Yes, the men of Israel, they were in deep, deep trouble, and they knew it. Just like Joseph's brothers, these men of Israel, listening to Peter, have just now figured out that the one they had killed, Jesus of Nazareth, can now kill them with one word. He has all power over all things. This is what the author of the book of Acts, Luke, means when he says that those listening to Peter were cut to the heart. It is as though Peter's sermon went straight through their hearts. They were bleeding, as it were, from the very depths of their soul. It was a blood that could not be seen, but that flowed out of the deep wound in their conscience, created by the truth that the one they had rejected and hated is the one now exalted in the presence of God. So then the question is asked, what shall we do? That question should not be seen as an expression of ignorance. Rather, this question is an expression of deep desperation. This is where true repentance begins. When we experience repentance in our lives, in a true biblical sense, two things happen. First, there is a recognition of the evil of our sin. Second, there is a realization of the utter glory of the one against whom we have sinned. This is what we're seeing in these people as they heard Peter's words regarding the exalted Jesus and their life and death dilemma. What shall we do? What shall we do? They have come face to face with the reality that the one who is now exalted at the right hand of power can now destroy them, not just physically, but also eternally. So it was a sorrowful question 
But it was also an expected question given the context. What else would they ask when they faced with this awful truth? We killed the one who is now exalted. So the question itself is not that shocking. What is shocking is our next point, the apostolic response. Consider verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I believe the key to understand verses 38 and 39 is to look at those three words at the beginning of verse 39. For the what? The promise. The promise that is connecting those two verses. The heart of Peter's answer is God's promise. It goes like this in the first part of verse 38, Peter talks about the appropriation of the promise in the second half of verse 38. Peter talks about the essence of the promise or the substance of the promise. And finally in verse 39, Peter, Peter talks about the extent of the promise. So let's consider the first one, the appropriation of the promise, repent and be baptized to the sorrowful question. What shall we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I said that the apostolic response is shocking. Well, in what sense in the sense that Peter's response does not come with condemnation. It comes with a promise of forgiveness and salvation. This, my dear friends, is the grace of God. This is truly the grace of God. These men of Israel, as they stood there condemned under the crushing weight of their guilt for having hated and rejected the Christ, they know they have nothing whatsoever to give, nothing whatsoever to offer, nothing whatsoever to say to Peter. These men are helpless and they are hopeless. Clearly, grace must come from above. You see, salvation is not about men doing penance for their sin. Rather, salvation is about the exalted Lord being merciful to sinners. Repentance is not primarily about, about making amends. Repentance is the soul's recognition of evil and guilt, which leads us to a change in our thinking regarding our sin. To this, Peter is calling these men. You, says Peter, your sins are the reason Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. You rejected him and you gave him over to be crucified. Recognize your sin and let that sorrow in your hearts lead you to turn away from your evil ways. To that, Peter adds, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Why the connection between baptism and forgiveness? I believe the answer lies in the fact that through the act of baptism, the person is publicly saying this, the crucified and risen Christ is the source of my forgiveness. Therefore, I am identifying myself as his disciple. So it is not baptism that grants forgiveness. It is the exalted Christ who grants forgiveness 
Baptism is the means to identify with the exalted Lord who in love and obedience, listen to this, placed himself under the curse of God through death. And because of his love and obedience was then raised to eternal life. Thus, when the believer is baptized in the water, he's publicly saying, I too have died to sin. I've been buried with Christ and have been raised to walk in newness of life. Also with Christ. Look at what Jesus has done in me. That is the testimony of baptism. Now consider also the radical nature of water baptism. Consider the significance of the act. These men are being told to go from publicly hating Jesus to now publicly identifying with Jesus as their own and rightful savior. So there is a promise, but you must repent and be baptized. Now, just a few moments ago, at the beginning of the service, we witnessed a few people being baptized. In their baptism, these people were in essence saying this, Jesus, the Lord who died and rose again and was exalted at the right hand of God, he has granted me forgiveness of sins. I have died with him, but I have also been raised with him. He has done it all. I just want you all to know it. Baptism is the external sign that identifies us with the Lord who cleanses us from sin. Also note this, note this, please. Don't miss it. Baptism is not saying we hope the Lord will forgive us. We hope the Lord will forgive us. Rather, baptism says, because of Jesus, we have been forgiven. Now, the follow-up question is this. How does the exalted Jesus accomplish this in us? How can he, think about this, who is now exalted at the right hand of God, be the one to grant the new covenant blessing upon his people? Well, this takes us to the substance of the promise. The substance of the promise, letter B. What is the substance of the promise? You know it? <laughs> A lot of whispering and I'm not sure. Who? Who said it? The Holy Spirit. Thank you back there. Whoever you are, I can't see you. I'm getting old. That's it. Now, having told them that they need to appropriate the promise through repentance, Peter now reiterates what the promise is. He repeats it. Well, how can he repeat it? When did he say it? Well, back in verse 33 of the same chapter, Peter already told them what the promise was. Undoubtedly, the promise has a name. It is the Holy Spirit who was given to whom? To the exalted Jesus. And as we said last week, Jesus, as the exalted God-man, now has the right and the authority to grant the Spirit to his new covenant people. Now, if you look at, at the end of verse 38, it says the gift of the Holy Spirit. What are we to make of that? I believe in this context, we ought to understand this as another way of speaking about the promise of the Holy Spirit which makes sense if you read verses 38 and 39 together. It would sound something like this. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children, etc., etc. Here is then the substance of the promise. The Holy Spirit himself 
the third person of the Trinity. Have I mentioned before how the biblical writers could not explain salvation apart from the Trinity? They simply can't. It is a Trinitarian work. And here we see it again. We see it again. The saving work of Jesus, listen, should never be, should never be separated from the saving work of the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as someone being in Christ, but not of Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to have what? The spirit of Christ as Romans chapter eight, verse nine categorically says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is why the promise This is why the promise is the Holy Spirit. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the exalted Jesus grants his people all his new covenant blessings. Who are his people? Well, the answer is in verse 39. Now, before we get there, let me show you the beauty of biblical prophecy and fulfillment. In your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. If you're using one of our blue Bibles, this is in page 799. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, as we read it, remember how the men of Israel were cut to the heart upon hearing what they had done to Jesus. Zechariah 12, verse 10, here's the promise, here's the prophecy, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Where did all this happen? Pentecost. In Jerusalem. I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over a firstborn. Consider that language. They, the ones who pierced the Messiah shall mourn. Oh, what a prophecy that is. As Peter speaks about him, Jesus, whom they had pierced, these men were cut to the heart. There was mourning in Jerusalem. They were mourning as they considered their sin against God's anointed. But then comes a promise. Considering in in the same book of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, the prophet says, On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do what? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The fountain was opened indeed on the day of Pentecost by Jesus Christ himself. As the men of Israel mourn for their sin, the exalted Lord himself opens the fountain of life. Jesus, as the only rightful head of the new covenant, pours out the spirit, the one who through the washing of regeneration washes away our sin on the basis of Christ's shed blood on the cross. By sending his spirit upon his people during Pentecost, Christ himself is telling those men of Israel, I can turn your mourning into dancing, your sorrow into joy. Yes, you had me killed, but what you did not understand is that my death was for you. With my blood, I purchased you. Now I have received the authority to claim you as mine. 
Yes, I could destroy you permanently, but I won't because I have loved you eternally. So I am sending my spirit to you as a seal. He will circumcise your heart. You are mine from this time forth and forevermore. These are the words of the exalted Christ to those men who betrayed him. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is the glory of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Which leads us to our letter C, the extent of the promise. We have seen the appropriation of the promise, repentance and faith. We have seen the substance of the promise, the Holy Spirit. Now the extent of the promise. What is the extent of the promise? Everyone effectually called. Everyone effectually called. Having explained the need to appropriate the promise through repentance and baptism, And having explained the essence of the promise, Peter now speaks about the extent of this promise. In other words, to whom is this promise given? Let me propose the following reading of verse 39, which I believe is natural. Follow the reading of verse 39. I'm going to propose this this reading. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, meaning... Or that is to say, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The last sentence in verse 39 is the one that explains the entire verse. The extent, therefore, of the promise of the Holy Spirit goes into all the world because the one who fulfills the promise is sovereign over all things. And he effectually calls his people to himself. Hence, the words of Jesus in John 10, 16, my sheep will listen to my voice. It is the exalted Jesus himself, the ones who calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light and to the called, he makes this promise. Remember this, Jesus has never made a promise. He did not keep. If he makes you a promise, will he fulfill it? He will fulfill His promise. Therefore, if you men of Israel call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, then the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. If your children, meaning the next generation, if they do the same and call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, then the promise of the Holy Spirit is also for them. But wait, it gets even better. Get ready to have your minds blown, men of Israel. If those who are far off In Judea, in Samaria, Samaria, those Samaritans, are you kidding me? Yes, Samaria and the ends of the earth from every tribe, nation and tongue. If they do the same and call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, then the promise of the spirit is for them too. Why? Listen, because the exalted Jesus has jurisdiction in the entire world. No corner of this planet is beyond his reach. No people beyond his grace and no nation beyond his power. Whomever he calls will come. Yes, all authority has been given to him, literally. Amazingly, repentance and faith based on verse 39 are themselves gifts of the exalted Christ. Because Christ is the one who calls by the spirit. So let me give you a summary, a short summary of the entire sermon of Peter. 
in chapter two of Acts. Here it is. Please listen to this. I'm going to connect all the dots now. The promise of the Holy Spirit is rooted in the blood of Christ. Acts chapter two, verse 23. Confirmed in the resurrection of Christ. Acts 2.24, given to the exalted Christ, Acts 2.33a, distributed by the will of Christ, Acts chapter 2, verse 33b, and secured by the sovereignty of Christ, Acts 2.39. Some have identified an unbreakable chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. I see the same chain in Acts chapter 2. Jesus died to redeem his people. He rose again to redeem his people. He was exalted as the redeemer of his people. And having received the spirit, Jesus actually redeems his people by circumcising their hearts, giving them faith and repentance and sealing them for eternity. This, my friends, is the glory of the new covenant in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our redeemer. Which leads us to our last point, which is this, the first fruits, verses 40 and 41. The first fruits, verse 40 and 41. And with many other signs, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. It is not surprised that the Holy Spirit was poured out on what day? The day of Pentecost, which was also known as the Feast of Weeks. As I have mentioned before, the Feast of Weeks was a time of thankfulness to the Lord for the harvest. During the Feast of Weeks, the Jews gathered in Jerusalem to express gratitude for the first fruits of the harvest in expectation of more to come. How wonderful to realize that the Holy Spirit came during that celebration. Why is that significant? It is significant because those 3,000 souls that were saved on that day were what? The first fruits of a worldwide harvest brought about by the Spirit of Christ. This was just the beginning. Those 3,000 were a sample of what was to come. Now, even though 3000 is a big number, we could say that it started small today. As we look back into church history, the same spirit who was sent by the exalted Christ continues to do his work. And over 2000 years later, we are still here. And what started with 3000 souls has now turned into what? Millions upon millions, all of which is leading up to what the last book of the Bible says in Revelation 7, verse 9, we read, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. The souls saved during Pentecost were the first fruits of a much, much larger harvest. And when all is said and done, the number of those saved by the spirit will be beyond counting. 
all because Jesus has been exalted to him. The spirit was given and now people from all over the world are being circumcised in their hearts, marked out as Christ's own people and given the promise of eternal life in the spirit. This is the work of our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ. In light of this truth, in light of the eternal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, I must ask you, have you received the word? What does that mean? It means to believe it, to believe the word. It means to agree with the word. It means to believe that Jesus is indeed Lord, the one who was crucified, risen, and exalted. The truth is that your sins, your sins, my sins deserve death. But Jesus of Nazareth died for sinners. But he also rose and now he reigns as king. If you have come to the realization that your sins can condemn you before a holy God, and let me say this, today is the day of salvation for you. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized. Notice how the command is given to individuals. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, the generation to whom Peter was speaking was wicked and perverse. Why? Well, it was in that generation that the author of life was murdered. People from that generation killed the incarnate son of God. Peter tells them to save themselves from that generation, meaning call upon the name of the Lord to save yourselves, call upon the name of the Lord and don't follow the course of this world. Don't go along with the evil mentality of the day. Do not join this generation in their evil ways. Rather, come to Christ in repentance. That's what Peter tells them. You must know, my brother and sister and my friend this morning, that we are now in the 21st century, but right now there is a war on repentance. Believe it or not, I can give you an example. In Canada, Bill C-4 was passed. You may not have heard of it. This is the anti-conversion therapy. This means that if a biological boy desires to become a girl, you don't tell them that that's wrong. If you do, you risk up to five years in jail. You know what that is? That is war on repentance. This evil generation this evil generation, including rulers and authorities, they don't want people to repent. According to Canadian leaders, calling men and women, boys and girls to repent of their sins is now criminal. So yes, there is a war on repentance, but ultimately this is a war on Christ, the exalted Lord. Sadly, what these initiatives prove is that what sinful men really want is the exaltation of the self, not the exaltation of the Christ. They refuse to look upward. They insist on looking inward. But the call of Christ, however, is a call to repentance, to turn away from our sins, 
In Christ, you must believe. And under his lordship, you must live. So I tell you, my friend, today is the day of repentance. Look to the one who shed his blood, who died, who rose again, and who is now exalted at the right hand of God, having all authority over all things. Turn away from your sins. Trust in Christ as your redeemer and be baptized if you haven't been already. And let us all rejoice together in the salvation of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, which never fails to accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And so, Father, we pray now that your spirit will take what was spoken as Christ was exalted and presented before us as the one who has all authority and dominion and power over all things. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone in this room walking in rebellion, rejecting the Christ, that by your spirit, you will call them to yourself, that you will give them eyes to see, and that they will call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for his finished and sufficient work, which has secured our redemption. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.